Hey guys, welcome back to Silicon Street, a podcast where we explore the intersection of finance, technology, and entrepreneurship by providing college students and young professionals with insight into these ever-evolving fields and uncover the secrets to success from distinguished industry leaders. My name is James Barham, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Cutler. If you're new to the podcast, be sure to follow us on Spotify and LinkedIn as we will be posting each week, and definitely check out our existing platform of over 70 podcasts. Today, we're excited to welcome Professor Raymond Mooney who is a distinguished figure in the realm of artificial intelligence and machine learning, celebrated for his prolific contributions spanning decades. As a seasoned computer scientist and educator, his expertise and innovative research have left an indelible mark on the field. His commitment to responsible AI development, extensive publication record, and mentoring of future AI leaders have solidified his status as a thought leader and educator in the ever-evolving landscape of artificial intelligence. He's currently a professor at the University of Texas and the director of the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. He also leads the Machine Learning Research Group. Without further ado, Professor, welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, that's fine. Thank you. Thank you for the nice introduction. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. No, super, super excited to have uh, you on today, Professor. Um, It's kind of hard not to get caught up in in the hype of AI nowadays. It seems like everywhere you look, uh, AI is dominating the, the headlines or and political conversations are, are, are somewhere. So going to be very cool to hear perspective for, from someone who's been in AI for so long and uh, who's a top name in, in AI research. So um, I guess just to jump right into it, um, artificial intelligence is kind of such a blanket term um, that is sometimes confusing to people what it encompasses. Um, I mean, whether you be scrolling through TikTok or have a video recommended to you on YouTube or even use your phone with, with Face ID, it's kind of everyone interacts with AI one way or another nowadays. Uh, but obviously with kind of the coming about of ChatGPT, uh, AI has definitely taken a, a, a new level of excitement. So um, I guess just before we hop into any any further topics and any deeper um, topics, we'd love to kind of just step back and hear um, you kind of explain what AI is, maybe describe its various subsets, and then Talk about specific areas of AI that you do research in today. Yeah. So again, like defining any scientific field can be sort of tricky. So I did look at your questions. So I tried to at least come with some preparation for that. So I guess I would subscribe to a definition like AI is developing computer systems that can perform cognitive tasks that humans perform, like language understanding, perception, planning, reasoning, problem solving things of that sort. And it is a there are a lot of sub areas of the field. Um, so the two sub areas that I've generally worked on are machine learning, where you try to develop systems that can actually learn rather than having to program them to do things. And natural language processing, which is developing computer systems that you can talk to in ordinary everyday human languages like English, you know, which I think everyone's now familiar with Siri and and Alexa and things of that sort that that they can talk to. Um, But there are other areas, computer vision, uh, you know, scientists who try to develop uh, systems that can process and understand images and video and answer questions about them and recognize objects in them and events. Uh, You know, robotics, where obviously you're trying to develop, you know, systems that actually manipulate things in the real world and, you know, mobile robots that can move around, automated vehicles, you know, that can drive on their own uh and that and you know all of uh, robotics usually involves integrating a lot of those certainly vision is one thing that a robot needs to have so that you know there's close connections between robotics and computer vision 
Um, but there's other areas like planning, you know, trying to develop systems that can generate plans for accomplishing goals. Game playing, of course, is a, you know, a one that's attracted a lot of attention from when, you know, Deep Blue beat, you know, uh, the world chess champion to the latest, you know, uh, uh, deep, deep mind system that deep beat uh, the champion to go. Um, and, uh, you know, but uh, uh, yeah, so I think we've covered a lot of the the sub areas. And like I said, my two areas I've worked a lot in are some machine learning and, and language, and particularly the connection between them is how do we use machine learning to learn knowledge about language, which thanks to, you know, like you said, all the progress has been made recently, particularly on things that have ended up now in chat GPT, that, you know, that whole area has really come to dominate a lot of the recent discussion in AI, which yeah, no one's no. happier about than, 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 than me, about the progress that has been made. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I guess just if, if you wouldn't mind diving a little deeper and describing to those who might not know what natural language processing is, and as well, any like breakthroughs you've seen in your research lately, um, and maybe just exciting use cases. I know we just talked about uh, ChatGPT and Siri and Amazon Alexa, but any other kind of use cases you'll see for this type of artificial intelligence in the future? Yeah, so I mean, it's just in the general getting computers to communicate in human languages. It, there's sort of two parts of that. Most people it, it work in text where you're trying to process and and uh, and understand textual documents, but there's also speech recognition, right? Which we like Siri can do, where our, our, our Alexa, where you have to recognize people actually speaking, which adds another layer of difficulty on it, which is a lot harder than just reading text for a computer, at least. And uh, um, but yeah, I mean, so there are a lot of some of the applications that I've leaned towards more is I I I've worked lately in dialogue with robots, so. You know, particularly you want a robot to do something, you know, well, what's the easiest way, you know, you could try to program it in a programming language that's almost impossible for an ordinary, you know, you, human to, user to, to, to do. You just want to, like you would tell a person, you know, tell them in natural language what you want it to, to do. Yeah. And well, how does a computer understand that language? And particularly, how does it connect that language? When people who just work on text and even chat GPT, right, has no connection to the world. Right. It doesn't have any vision. It doesn't have any action. It's just a disembodied intelligence. What I'm really I really think understanding language requires understanding. Sometimes people call it situated language or embodied language where it's language talking about things in the world. Like you want to talk to a robot. You want to tell it, you know, get the 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 Coke out of the fridge and, and bring it to my grandmother who's upstairs or something like that, you know, uh, it needs to not just understand the language, but understand how that relate, language relates to its ability to do actions in the world and its ability to perceive. Where is the refrigerator? Okay, how do I open it? You know, how do I get find the Coke in there? How do I get it up? I mean, there are things that ChatGPT can't do, right? It doesn't have any vision. It doesn't have any action. And I really think a lot of the interesting problems in language understanding involve making that connection between language and action and perception in the world. And I call that grounded natural language processing. And I teach a graduate seminar class specifically on that part of natural language, which is how do we connect the meaning of language to action and perception in the world? And I think a lot, unfortunately, a lot. And there are new language models out there that do include vision. In fact, a version of GPT-4 uh, does have this at even 3.5, I think, which is chat GPT. But the open AI doesn't release the vision part. My understanding, part of the reason why they haven't done that is they claim that it would solve all the CAPTCHAs that are out there. I assume, you know, you know what CAPTCHAs are. And so that would allow a lot of 
computers then to pretend like they're humans, right? Which a lot of systems rely on CAPTCHAs to try to prevent from computers pretending they're humans using their system. Um, but uh, so I, it's hard to judge what they have in terms of vision, but they clearly don't have action, right? They're not connected to a robot. They can't change anything in the actual world. Anyway, but I really care deeply about uh, building systems that can can connect language to the world. And so I can tell a robot what to do and then the robot can actually do that thing. And if it doesn't quite understand what I want, then it can engage me in a dialogue. It's like, you know, oh, there's no Coke in the fridge, but there's Pepsi. Do you want that instead, right? You know, where, uh, you know, it, it, maybe if it can't accomplish a goal, it can engage me in a natural language dialogue that goes back and forth and can ask me questions if it needs more information. And so I've been very interested in those issues of dialogue in the context of an actual embodied system that can change the world. And and just to follow up to that, why do you think it is so difficult to to connect the language to to an action? Because it seems like what systems like Siri and ChatGPT can ChatGPT can do uh, is so so amazing and um, and cool. The responses that it'll pump out, but um, why, why, in your opinion, is it, it is so difficult to connect that language aspect to the physical action? And maybe is there a timeline that you see that? Um, well, I mean, I don't mean to claim there isn't progress on this. There obviously has been. And there's a lot of good work in, you know, I've worked on video captioning where you try to describe in language what's in a video or what's called visual question answering, where I give you a question about an image. So talking about applications, one of the applications I think that comes up a lot in the, the vision and language work is aids for the visually impaired. So, there, you know, if a, a, a visually impaired person's in a store, they can like take a picture of, you know, the shelf in uh uh, you know, on their smartphone and then can ask the system, you know, uh, where is the tomato soup and, you know, what brand is and how much does it cost or whatever. Because, you know, the, so there, I think there's lots of applications in helping the visually impaired, particularly in, in having systems that ground language and vision. And, and, you know, there is good progress in that space, but there's still uh, progress to be made. Uh, and, you know, there are just a lot of problems in robotics that are not necessarily linguistic problems, but they connect to the ability to ask robots to do things because just grasping things is really tricky. And just getting a robot arm that can actually open a fridge door, grab the, you know, the Coke can or something like that. It's non-trivial, you know. That's why I don't know if you know how Amazon's uh, warehouses currently work, but they just have all these automated shelves that it brings the shelf to the person. But the person still has to pick the object out of off the shelf and put it into the box because they have yet to get, you know, there's not robots aren't quite good enough at grasping a wide variety of things that uh, still humans do. They've actually been running competitions to, to you know, to have robots that are better at, at, at grasping. But it's still it's still a, a, a lingering problem. And so a lot of those physical skills that we would like to ask a robot to do. It can't do not because it doesn't understand it, but because it just doesn't have the physical manipulability of its of its of its hands, uh, say to to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's fascinating, and definitely seems like a very difficult problem. So glad that uh, that people are like you are working on it. Um, and I guess kind of speaking about progress, um, I think uh, something cool to do right now in the in the podcast is kind of look back. Uh, we we saw that you wrote your first. Um, paper on AI as a 17 year old. And mm -hmm. it's kind of crazy for me to believe that AI has been along for that long, around for that long. Um, it kind of dates back to the 1950s when Alan right. Turing proposed machine intelligence and um, John McCarthy held a workshop at Dartmouth, kind of where the term artificial intelligence was coined. So you've done your homework. That's absolutely I, I, 
Uh, yeah, did, did my did my uh, did my research, but uh, I think I think it's really fascinating that it, it dates back to, to that long ago. Because as a naive uh, 19, 20 year old, it's it's hard to to think um, <laughs> that it dates that back. So I guess having written that paper as a seventeen year old and kind of being um, a thought leader in AI for for so long, um, can you just give us a brief history of AI and how it's kind of developed? Yeah, so you gave the start. So certainly Turing and McCarthy were there at the at the very beginning because the minute people started, I mean, even the whole development of computing was a lot about trying to mimic things that the human mind could do, right? I mean, computers in general were developed. You know, the term computer used to mean a person that would calculate things, right? Now we can't even imagine that as a you know description. A person's not a computer, right? But that was the original term computer was a person that used, you know, a lot of times in, like uh, there you people use calculators at least originally, but they had to do all the sequencing of the of the calculations that now we expect, obviously expect computers to do. So yeah, so AI started more in the in the 50s. And one, I guess one thing I like to talk about when I talk about history is there's different, you might call it paradigms or sort of different sort of fundamental intellectual approaches to the field that have come in and out of, of sort of uh, popularity over the years. So the, the, the whole approach that's very popular right now is neural nets, where we use computers to model human, uh, neuro, well, not necessarily human, but neurobiological systems where there's mathematical com uh, components that model individual neurons and how they communicate with other neurons. But that is not a new idea. That started in the 50s as well. So there's a, a method called perceptron that was developed by a guy named Rosenblatt in the in the mid-50s that learned, but all it could learn was one neuron. It could just learn the synaptic weights or connections on one neuron, which was very limiting. And then people showed how limiting that was in the 60s. And that approach became very unpopular because we didn't know how to generalize it to beyond very trivial one neuron level systems. So then this whole era, there was an era of what people usually called symbolic AI or logic-based AI, where instead of basing the processing of information on neural processing, they said, no, there's a lot of development in mathematical logic where we reason about you know, things logically and rationally, and we develop statements in a formal representation of knowledge and logic and do reasoning on that. And that's the right way to build AI. And that was very dominant when I was being educated in the field. So that sort of was dominant in the 70s and through the 80s when I was I was educated in the fields. But then neural nets started, came, uh, came as a, a, a new methods in the late 80s. As I was finishing up my PhD and starting my faculty position, there was a new wave of work in neural nets because people figured out how to train networks that were more than just one neuron, that were multiple layers. But in most time, at that point, most of the neural network was three, the most the algorithms could really handle effectively were like three layer networks where you have three layers of neurons that could talk to each other and you could train them to do things, you know, like recognize speech or recognize an image or something like that. But then that sort of petered out. And then the next paradigm that became dominant mainly within the 90s was there's a, a, a group of people that more were interested in probability theory and statistics and said, no, the right way to build, you know, AI systems and learning systems is to base it on statistical analysis of data using probabilistic algorithms. You know, this is sometimes called the Bayesian approach after this famous British mathematician, Thomas Bayes, who came up with this thing called Bayes' theorem, which is a mathematical result that ends up being critical to the type of algorithms you need to do if you want to do AI and learning in, 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 in probability theory. 
And then that became dominant for a while. Then sort of the neural net people came back and said, oh, we can train even deeper networks now. This has led to the new era of deep learning, uh, where now, you you know, we have algorithms and, and methods. And one thing I usually claim, one of the, the real advantages of the real progress in deep learning came about not so much because of fundamental computer science development and algorithms, but was the, the availability of huge amounts of data. So if you're going to learn, you need lots of data. And it was hard to get data in electronic form for many years until we had the web. Now all this text and all these images and all these videos are just all out there on the web. You just have to download them. And so, you know, now all this amazing amount of data became available in electronic form starting in the 90s, right? Um, and that enabled these algorithms to be trained on so much more data. And another part of it is the compute that it needs to process all this data. So maybe you've heard everybody talks about the chips that are needed in AI these days called, called GPUs. For, they originally developed for graphics, called graphics processing units. But these days, they're most in demand for, for training neural networks. Uh, and you know, NVIDIA has become a big company because they are the main manufacturer of these powerful chips that have GPUs that are critical in training large neural networks. So you know, I think the recent era of deep learning was sort of resurgence of you know, somewhat older algorithms, probably more from the 90s, but when they were applied to this massive amount of data that's now available and using the massive amount of compute, you know, particularly that high tech companies, you know, started to build in their server farms, that the, the power of these things became quite uh, impressive and, you know, led to systems like ChatGPT, where, you know, uh, you know, OpenAI doesn't even release how much data that their, that model has been trained on and how much CPU time it took, GPU time, sorry, it took to process it. Um, and, uh, you know, so, but yeah, I mean, I think there've been these different eras of AI where different perspectives or paradigms have be, been popular. And, you know, the deep learning paradigm is just the latest incarnation of, of, of a long history of development in AI over the past, you know, like you said, like 60 years now. Just kind of real quick, could you touch on on neural networks? And I don't know, when, when you mentioned neural networks and like the one layer versus the three layers, I was kind of thinking, why do we need these different layers? Why do we need different neurons talking to each other in a computer? And, and kind of, I guess, our only model of quote unquote thinking and intelligence is the human brain. And so um, is that why it's being used and, and kind of what is this? That network? was certainly the original inspiration. I mean, if we're going to build something that can do what people do, not, why not look at how the human brain actually processes these things? But like I said, there are other these other paradigms don't really exploit much from what we know about neurobiology. They say we can build AI on top of logic or we can build AI on top of probability theory and statistics. And, you know, those are approaches that have made surprising progress, too. It's just the latest best progress has been in these in these neural methods. But but basically, a single neuron can only compute a very simple function. You know, it's a, it's an incredibly simple. It only stores like basically one bit of information and compute, you know, maybe a thousand connections, you know, coming in. Uh, and uh, it's just very limited. So with that, you, you need to build the complexity of doing more pro complicated things. You need to build layers and layers of, of neurons to build up to have the computational power to do more more interesting, more more capable sorts of uh, computing. And so now we have now we have millions of of, of, of simulated neurons, right? 
And you know, the thing to be clear is there aren't any neurons in the computer, right? It's just all mathematical abstract simulations of a neural systems in a normal, you know, what's called von Neumann computer, which is still doing just basic symbol manipulation, but it's simulating what a really large collection of neurons uh, could compute. So does each neuron do a different task or you just need them communicating with each other to, to oh, they're all basically the... doing the same computation individually it's the, the way you connect them and the strength of the connections between them that enables the entire network to do amazing variety of different things okay that's fascinating so um i guess we'll touch later on on how chat gpt and artificial intelligence more more generally kind of freak professors out and i'm sure that you've got here, heard inklings of this in, in your role as a professor there at University of Texas. Um, and so we'll come back to that a little bit. But on the other side of the spectrum, and I guess this goes for not just artificial intelligence, but but more so just general scientific development um, and, and advancement within academia, um, it seems like seeming simultaneously artificial intelligence is being developed in, in the commercial realm and in um, the world of academics. And so could you kind of speak to how these two relate to each other and maybe how artificial intelligence in academia could could boost um, the entrepreneurial side of things and, and kind of communicate with both ethical dilemmas brought up in philosophy classes and then the views of computer science professors who are, who are making advancements and then also the vision of entrepreneurs who are working to advance the field of NLP and machine learning and kind of speak to that ethical and, and, and so, yeah so i've been way. in academia my whole life so i'm fundamentally an academic i did spend one semester doing a sabbatical at microsoft research in seattle but uh, but i'm mainly speaking as an academic but you know i think both you know industry and academia has have made important contributions to the field you know going back you know, even 50 years, but more importantly, in the last, you know, since the internet and we have companies like, you know, big web, you know, tech companies like Google and and Microsoft and and Facebook and things of that sort. But it is getting a little frustrating. I actually gave a talk at the beginning of the last semester here in January. I called the new era of big science AI. How do academics adapt to the new reality? Because as an academic, it's hard to get access to the amount of data and compute power that the large tech companies have. And so trying to replicate what they've done in academia is basically impossible. And it does worry me that, you know, the best AI systems we have now, because they, you know, a lot of it does come, like I said, it's not so much the core underlying computer science behind it, it's the amount of data and the amount of compute that you need to build these systems is immense and, and and only the largest tech companies really have access to that. And that does concern me. And I, I think we need more, you know, public accessible, you know, uh, platforms for doing that level. And there are various people, you know, some people trying to fund a government, you know, level, uh, you know, AI sort of hardware and, and, uh, and data center, but also, uh, develop more with you know an open source sort of model where you can distribute the computing the required to build one of these models across many universities across many computers and many universities all cooperating together but but still independently um 
so but yeah it is the you know you can't deny that the best ai systems out there now like chat gpt have come out of industry i think not so much because they have better underlying algorithms or, or computer science concepts but because they have access to more data and more uh compute power um have you considered how this open source system might might actually take place or or how we can I, I thought about that that much myself but there are other other researchers uh uh out there uh we had a speaker colin raffle who was at the uh, university of north carolina i think he's in the process of of uh moving to to university of toronto i think i've heard in canada but he's really thought more deeply about this and has clear ideas about how we can maybe have you know multi you know, lots of researchers around the world cooperate together and pool all of their resources in a way in an open source model just the way a lot of software these days is open source software right it's not developed by tech companies it's open source that that you know large numbers of developers work on around the world to develop in unison he has ideas about how to do build ai systems this way which i and i'm very supportive of that i think that's an interesting approach because i don't think we we want to just leave the power of these systems in the hands of you know large profit oriented uh, companies not that you know i wasn't there was this i don't know if you guys follow this thing where there it was like what six months ago or something there was this letter that was to pause ai for mm -hmm. was it six months or something yeah. and i got that to sign and i decided not to sign it for a variety of reasons one i thought it was going to be ineffective because you know and also you know, I think the companies have tried to be reasonably good actors in this space, right? They've tried to, because they know that their own reputation is on the line, right? And, but there are potentially a lot of bad actors out there too that are, you know, trying to develop systems. It, it's, you know, we don't want to just pause everything. I don't think that's, at first, I don't think it would happen. And then B, I don't think it would have been a, an effective way. We just need to, you know, Think more deeply. I mean, you get into the ethical issues and there's lots of things that people have talked about there, obviously. So one thing I always want to start out with is, is that don't panic. There's a famous phrase from what uh, uh, Gadget Hikers Guide to the Galaxy. It's like, as, it, as a person who does understand the technology, it's not like computers are going to take over the world tomorrow like Terminator. I think that's extremely unrealistic, you know, fear or whatever. Uh, they're still, believe me, they're still very stupid in a lot of ways. And and also they don't have the incentive. What is the incentive? You know, they're not biological organisms that evolve from evolution. They don't have an inherent goal to, you know, replicate and take over the world or whatever, you know. So I think there's a lot of fear mongering out there that's not, you know, warranted. That, that It's not like an AI, AI computer is going to somehow suddenly take over the world like terminated. Now, having said that, there are a lot of important ethical concerns to be worried about. I mean, you can start with, you know, fake news, misinformation, fake video, you know, uh, deep fakes, things of that sort, where, you know, bad actors are going to be able to use this technology to generate misinformation and totally fake videos that look completely real of people, you know, doing horrible things, even though they never did them right. And using this for whatever, you know, political advertising or, or whatever. And there's a lot of real dangers out there. I think there, I think we just all have to be more skeptical about any media that we consume. But I think there's so much mi misinformation out there, thanks to people, 
But now, thanks to these AI systems, that's going to explode, I think, unfortunately, even more, which means we all need to be extremely, just because you see a video of somebody doing something, you want to say, ah, did they really do that? Where did that video come from? You know, I think we need to look more at provenance, right? Where do these things come from and what are the motives of the people that are releasing it? Because now you can manufacture videos and images and things that are incredibly realistic and convincing. But just realize that AI can now do that with completely fake information. And we're all going to have to be wary of that. So I think, you know, there is a legitimate threat in terms of misinformation and disinformation being exacerbated by this technology. And, of course, people are out there trying to develop ways to detect whether you know this this is a fake video or whether this is a document that was created by chat gpt and that in itself is a hard problem um and there are various approaches to it but there usually people talk about an arms race right is you know people develop technology to do bad things and then the people have to develop the technology to do good things to prevent that and it's a constant you know arms race uh, and you know and, and of course the other you talk about ethics and implications i guess to me, another obvious one is, is, you know, how is this going to affect employment? You know, that now that AI systems can do a lot of these things that they, you know, that people do, is that going to mean less employment for people? And I think probably inevitably it is, but it's not going to, a lot of times people talk about it, it's going to eliminate jobs. I think it's just going to make a lot of, you know, it's, there's still going to be a lot of need for people working with these systems because they still say some dumb things and they do stupid things. They need monitoring. But still, say a lawyer who has an AI, you know, system that they're using can be much more productive than an, a lawyer that's not. Uh, and therefore, there's going to be a less need for lawyers. Right. And so uh, and I think this is going to be true in a lot of areas where maybe the, the technology doesn't totally take over the job, but it's going to make each person doing that job more productive, which then, in, you know, indirectly causes a decrease because we need less people to do that task if, if they're being each of them is being more productive by using AI technology. And there, I guess I just feel we all maybe need to work less. I know I think maybe one of the things there's an there's uh, the auto workers are thinking right now, I think, of maybe going on strike. Right? I, think I think I heard one part. They, one of the things they might fight for is like lowering from a 40 hour work week. Right. Go down to 35. I think maybe they're, they're actually is part of the proposal that the union is making or something. And, you know, maybe, you know, the 40 hour work week, maybe you guys know when was that introduced? Maybe it, like during the Depression or something like that. And so. You know, maybe we all need to work less and everyone go to a 20 hour work week and let the computers do all the the boring drudgery. And we can hopefully all be more creative and productive and 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 do more fun things. No, absolutely. And I think, yeah, that's a kind of a fascinating idea and one that I, as business majors, it's kind of hammered into us to like work hard. That's where you find success. But it'll be interesting to watch how watch how this all plays out. Um, so kind of to build off of that and maybe talk about a, a more specific worry. Um, now that we've got phones and that was another huge technological advancement, I, I feel like a lot of people have trouble remembering things from, from phone numbers or directions or, or even conversations. Um, and, and it seems to me like this is because of both multitasking and then also maybe because we just don't prioritize remembering things because we have them at our fingertips, that information at our fingertips at all times. Um, so I feel like artificial intelligence in a similar way worries a lot of people just because it could make not only memory, but also critical thinking and, and creative thinking less necessary and, and therefore obsolete for human beings. Do you think that this 
idea of the degradation of the human intellect should be a worry for mankind? Like I would this... say no. I mean, you know, so let's start with mem memorizing. So, I, I, you know, when you I first saw this in the in the questions you sent, I was reminded of the fact that the the uh, they're writing from Greeks, you know, philosophers from whatever three thousand years ago that said, "Oh, writing is a horrible thing because now people will just write things down and read them, and they won't have to just remember stories by heart, you know." And they thought books were a horrible, you know, uh, thing because they were going to degrade human intellect or something, and so. And you start talking about things like creativity and like I said, you know, they, I, I, I would argue a lot of AI systems are right now creative to some extent and, and will continue to be able to do more creative, more intellectual tasks. But are we there yet? No, there's still a need for, you know, uh, you know, human input into into creativity. And, you know, people have tried, you know, having these systems, like you know, look at writing novels or something. And they're like they're basically just, you know, you know regurgitating combinations of uh, 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 of things they've read already online, right? They're not, you know, creative in the same way that a person can be creative. But I think we all need to learn how to use these tools to improve our own intellectual abilities and creativity. And you know, I think there have been people that have argued there. I remember reading a couple of competing articles in the New York Times. One saying, oh, there's all these grade school, you know, teachers are worried about their students using these tools. And there are other ones who are embracing them and, and then trying to teach their kids, you know, how to use these tools effectively and what they can learn from them. Because you don't want to just take the output of them verbatim, but you can take it and then critically analyze it. And and, and so I, I, don't, I think like any tool, you could either be abused or used effectively. And I think we're still in the beginning phases of learning both in education and in the broader, you know, world of how to use this technology effectively. But I, you know, being the optimist and the technologist that I am, I do believe that that's possible. Not that it's not, it's, it's going to be a struggle and, and we're, you know, it's going to be disruptive for a while. Uh, but in the end, I think it'll be, you know, these tools will increase our ability to do lots of interesting things and, 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 and solve problems that, you know, with the technology, we couldn't solve without it. Yeah, that's, that's very comforting to hear. There's definitely a lot of a lot of hype around um, kind of the negative implications of, of AI. So it's it's cool to hear that someone who's so experienced and been in it this long um, has those those positive views and reminds me of, of that uh, the paper you wrote when you were 17 um, of, the, of those very positive views and uh, and so, like, you know, I, like I put on a little blurb, I think, on my page that hopefully my views have, have matured and become <laughs> realistic. But there still is that optimist and that, you know, believer in, in the value of, of, of good technology in me that I had when I was 17 years old. And, but, you know, like I said, it doesn't the, all tech, most technology can be put to bad or good uses, but it's it's up to us as intelligent human beings and and, and a, funct a functioning society to say, okay, how do we want to use this technology to, to, to better mankind rather than to make things worse? I just think that is possible. Uh, and, uh, you know, and even today, I noticed that I was writing home, I listening to the news, there's a bunch of tech, you know, company people talking to people on Congress, you know, and, and uh, you know, at least maybe they become a little bit more educated about, uh, about the technology. And, you know, I'm not opposed to legislation trying to 
to figure out how do we keep AI systems safe. And uh, uh, it just, that's gonna re require a longer discussion between both technical people who understand the technical capabilities and social scientists and politicians uh, and you know ethicists and other things to come to conclusions about how do we wanna use this technology? But I am optimistic that you know, with the right structure, we can, you know, we're not going to ever eliminate the negative impacts of it, but hopefully we can try to minimize that and maximize what I believe are the incredible positive potential applications and implications of the technology. Absolutely. And I, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking about how how Google, we, we now have a world of information at our fingertips. But then I'll look next to me and, and my buddy's in chat GPT and he types in some complex question that I'd have to dig through five different articles and watch two videos to understand. And he said, explain this to me like I'm a 12 year old and it explains it. And and it just things just click easily when when somebody somebody explains. No, again, I would I would warn people to be a little skeptical still to say, don't just take everything that chat GPT gives you at face value. It's sometimes there's this problem. I'm sure, I'm sure you've got you guys have heard of it called hallucination, right? Where these are they tend to make stuff up. But, you know, the thing is, that's a fine line because sometimes you need to make things up to sort of fill in the gaps. There, the one example I always use this classic story that AI people talked about in the 70s of when you understand text, you have to be able to make inferences to fill in the gaps. So there's this, this old example that says John went to the restaurant, he ordered a steak, he left a big tip and he left. And I ask you, what did he eat? Yeah, we'd assume the steak. He stayed. I never told you he ate anything, right? I said he ordered something. I said he left. He left a big tip. I never told you anything about eating. But yet any human being would argue that that's a reasonable inference to make. That's not hallucinating. That's just filling in. That's reading between the lines, right? And there's a lot of important work you do in reading between the lines when you understand text, where you do have to make inferences. It's just at some point, the inference becomes too implausible and too unreasonable. Now it starts looking like hallucination, right? And these albums are still not good at teasing apart what are good, reasonable inferences that any human reader would make when they read this text versus a fabrication that just is a hallucination that goes outside the bounds of what any reasonable person would say follows from that information in the text. And that's a very hard, fine line distinction to make. And the current algorithms don't do it as well as they should. And I'm hopeful that the technology as it develops will get better and better. But right now, you have to be skeptical. You don't want to just trust everything that ChatGPT tells you because it makes up a lot of stuff. Absolutely. And you want to um, double check it. You want to be like a journalist. You're like a journalist. They go out, they talk to people. But when they write their article, they fact check, right? They go in, they examine, well, does this, what this guy said make sense? Let me double, you know, check it on this other source. I think we all have to treat these tools as like that. It's like, yeah, they're, they're useful information, but don't just take it at face value. Be skeptical, examine, get a second source, you know, verify things because these algorithms can make up things that are just not true. Absolutely. Well, that's a, that's a fantastic warning. And uh, I think your insights have been incredibly helpful and, and fascinating for us to hear. So, Professor Mooney, we thank you so much for coming on. And we think our listeners are going to have a great time listening to and uh, learning from you. Okay. So thank you so much. Okay, right. It's nice talking to you. Have uh, good luck with the rest of your podcast. All right, everyone. That about wraps up our conversation with Professor Raymond Mooney, the director of the Artificial Intelligence Lab at the University of Texas at Austin. We hope you enjoyed our conversation on breaking down the blanket term of AI and its history. 
explaining some of the exciting use cases and breakthroughs of natural language processing, and understanding how to balance the hype of the tremendous potential of AI with cautionary skepticism of its downsides. If you'd like to learn more about AI as a technology, as well as its implications on enterprise and investing, I would encourage you to check out a couple of our past episodes. First, I would recommend listening to our episode titled Democratizing AI with Michael Hortatsos, a VP at a leading enterprise AI company. I would also steer you towards an episode entitled Developing a Marketable AI Solution with Ryan Welsh, the co-founder and CEO of Kindy, which is a natural language technology platform. These episodes are great resources for all of you who are just trying to get a sense of maybe what AI is and how it can be used in the corporate world, as well as those of you who are actively trying to break into tech, the tech industry uh, or get involved in early stage investing. As always, if you have any guests or topics that you'd like us to cover in the future, please feel free to reach out to us on our website. And with that, I thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.